to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work plus community plus creativity. In these unusual times, I'm adding to that balance homeschooling, and most of my guests this fall will be talking about how they've managed their time and their sanity doing just that. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. COVID recording is a little different than studio recording. So we have with me my co-host, Minette, a miniature schnauzer. She may make little barking sounds or little snuffles, depending on how impatient she gets. Feel free to send me pictures of your pets. I love to see them. They make my day. And I will be putting some photos of Minette on my website, working9tothrive.com. A little bit later in the show, we'll have part one of my conversation with Christine Hebert, a woman who has extensive experience educating her large family at home while working. Different aged kids, there's a spread, but it's important to know that different solutions are appropriate for different times, and she's got a great handle on that. What I wanted to talk about first is homeschooling and disabilities. A common objection that I often hear to homeschooling is, my kid has disabilities. They need the services the school provides. And I'm sure that's true in context. But the context has changed, so it's worth questioning if the fundamental assumption is wrong, too. And I will preface this by saying that two of my kids had learning disabilities in elementary school, starting in elementary school, becoming a parent in elementary school. And one of my kids had an injury that caused some learning disabilities late in high school. So I'm very familiar with certain kinds of disabilities and homeschooling versus regular school. Here's the concept I want to introduce right now, and that is the social model of disability. Here's how that works. Imagine a world where everybody in the world can fly. They can just will themselves to rise up into the air and propel themselves forward or backwards, and go places. If that happened by magic today, and you were the one person that this did not happen to, try as you might, you cannot rise up in the air, you cannot propel yourself forward and backwards in the air, but your legs work, and you get around as you always have. If the world is exactly the same as it was before this magical occurrence happened, you're not really disabled. You still have your job that you've had all along. You're able to do it properly. You can still use your car. You can still use your house. You can still go to the courthouse for whatever you need. You are not in a social disability context disabled because you are fully and totally functional and autonomous. And yeah, you have this difference between you and the magic flyers, and maybe you have feelings about that. But as long as the rest of the world hasn't changed, then you really don't manifest a disability. Now, once everyone has become magic and people have gotten used to this flying ability, they start designing and building tall buildings. And you go in to go to a meeting for work to one of these tall buildings and 
you can't find the stairs. There are no stairs. Why would there be stairs? Everybody but you can fly. So you go and you look for an elevator. And there is an elevator shaft, but when the doors open, there's no elevator there. It's just empty because everybody but you can fly. Now you are disabled. In a world where, in, <laughs> it makes me sound like a radio announcer, in a world, in a world where the environment suits you perfectly, you are not, in fact, disabled. Using the term disabled, you are not in any way undercut by your surroundings. You are fully functional. So imagine for a minute what this would look like in terms of deafness. For a long time, the residents of Nantucket in Massachusetts, the island off of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, Many, many residents were deaf. In fact, American Sign Language partly comes out of their signs. It was so prevalent. They were so numerous people that couldn't hear, had compromised hearing, that everybody signed. They spoke, they signed. They could not often remember which one they had done. They adapted whichever speaking system worked better for the context and the group and the conversation and the environment that they were in. This has been talked about and researched in a number of places where researchers went and interviewed the elderly, because of course the people that had this community, this very close-knit community, are largely dead now. But, you know, 20 years ago when they were sort of discovering what it, this, this strange occurrence, a lot of those people were interviewed about this. They could not often remember who was deaf and who was hearing because it just wasn't part of how they thought. They just adapted so quickly. So deafness was not a disability in that community. If everyone was functional and nobody had any problem hearing or speaking in terms of communication, let's put it that way. So maybe they had problems hearing and speaking, but if everyone was functional and no one had trouble communicating effectively, then where's the disability? Another way to imagine this is if you were to have a layout in a home where everything was completely stationary, you, you never moved anything, you have things to be in the expected places at all times, then does it matter if you're blind? You know that that chair will be there. You are never going to trip over it because that is where the chair is. Your environment will take care of what otherwise was a disability. Interestingly enough, some research has been done on this with the very elderly or people who are suffering dementia, and it is to create these environments. They've been doing it a lot in the Netherlands where they'll create a village and the village is self-contained. You can't wander out of the village, but the village itself has houses and places to live that are not too different from the places the residents always lived. There are small corner shops, and these are all staffed by medical staff, by psychological staff, by the staff of the institution. But the residents can go to the shop and pick up a little thing of milk and some crackers for lunch, as if they had always been able to. It looks the same as the convenience stores that are outside of the elderly home. What they've found is that the functionality of the residents is 
brilliantly, beautifully high. So are they disabled? A lot of their disability has been relieved. Let's put it that way. They may remain disabled in some functional definition, but they are not dysfunctioned. They're not handicapped, like we might use that word in golf. They're not compromised by this world that they live in. In fact, the world has been created so that they are not compromised. What does that have to do with any of this? In school, learning disabilities may be a handicap. It is a handicap. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a learning disability. So in other words, if you don't learn to read on time, at the level that the school has decided kids have to read on time for, and next episode, I'll go into something about averages because they do everyone a disservice. But if if a kid is not reading at the predetermined level, now they have a problem. When you homeschool, if they are not reading at the level that someone else decided that other children should meet, but they are learning and Maybe they're using audiobooks. Maybe they're using comic books. Maybe they're using some kind of physical way of learning. Maybe you're reading to them. There's a million ways to do this as long as they continue showing improvement, as long as they are progressing towards mastery, as long as they are succeeding in learning and kids do, then the rules that apply at the school do not have to apply at home, which means that we can create an environment, a learning environment for our kids that meets them and meets their needs exactly where they are. And what's amazing about this is we can customize it. It is impossible for the schools to customize to that extent. You can't customize for 30 kids. That's why everything ends up being done to averages. But why not take this opportunity in homeschooling your kids, not schooling them at home, not remote schooling. If those fit for you, fine, then this piece of the conversation is not applicable. But if they're not fitting for you, if they're not fitting for your family, if they're not fitting for your kid, then dump them and create a learning space where your kid is met at their point right now because they are exactly where they're supposed to be right now. That's the thing that's missing from a lot of school and educational conversations. We focus a lot on being egotistical when the kids are ahead. And I mean this as parents and as kids, being proud of our kids vicariously when they are quote unquote ahead, being disappointed in them and considering them behind or slow or just inadequate when they are behind. And then there is no average. And a lot of times that's treated as mediocre. That is not an optimum learning environment for human brains to be dealing with this huge swirl of emotions of comparing yourself constantly to others to make sure that you're ahead, to feel good based on that, to feel bad based on being on an arbitrary behind. So there's already a weight that kids carry all the time just by being in school as an institution. So one of the reasons that I think homeschooling is so great for kids, and I've watched it play out, is you can create a learning environment that is exactly like 
you create an environment where being able to fly isn't necessary in order to function. So two of my kids had reading delays, I guess, for want of a better word. Ultimately, though, though I worried it was a delay, though it was called a delay when they were in school, though I believed it was a delay based on reading a lot about how kids learn or how education should progress, they learned to read by the time they were 12. So who cares if they were behind? When they read, they were at grade level once they started reading. It was just a question of once they started reading. It was still very difficult for them. They both had reasons because, of course, these things don't come from nowhere. There were reasons why it was difficult for them to read. So I read to them a lot. They read to each other when possible. So my daughter that didn't have a learning disability for many years was often delighted to read to her sisters if they asked for instructions and she could read them. So they cooperated a lot. And then the other thing was getting books in audio and getting books that had a lot of cartoon, a lot of comic book style reading. They still read. They learned to read. They got better at reading. Everything counts. None of this is bad. And when they did figure out workarounds around the things that challenged them, they did great. So were they disabled at that point? No, they weren't learning disabled because their learning was not disabled in any way. Their learning was not handicapped in any way. This is not to undercut the fact that there are kids that need various kinds of help. This is just a challenge parents who are having a hard time this fall to look at the things that they're having a hard time with and ask yourself, if I changed the environment, if I changed the requirements, would this kid even have a learning disability? If part of the learning disability is, for example, ADHD and the kid needs to move, needs to get out, needs to run around for a while, well, homeschooling's perfect for that. For one thing, it requires considerably less time than six hours a day of focused, on-task, your time. So maybe you've had that time or maybe you'll get to it later, but in the meantime, you can flex about, you know what? Go outside and dribble a basketball for 15 minutes and come back in when you feel like your body's ready to settle down. You can do that on the fly at any time when you homeschool. It's a magical, beautiful thing. You can work with the child that you have who is whole and perfect as they were made. And they're just trying to learn. They're trying to get through. There's something really lovely about the gift of saying, I completely accept you as you are. Let me make a world where what you are is acceptable. So that's what I really love about that. And that uses the social model of disability. So when you're looking at your kid and you're worried about would they be able to homeschool if they need certain kinds of assistance from the school? Ask yourself whether the problem is not the material, but school. And then the other thing you can always, always do, you're a taxpayer. You live in a town. You're a citizen. You can do hybrid. You can request and keep requesting. Sometimes in certain school districts, you have to really fight for it. You can continue receiving services while your child homeschools. It's a kind of hybrid. If there were ever a time to enlist hybrids, this is that time. It's great to ask the schools to learn to be more flexible with their services and to be able to justify why or why not they can't provide them. 
And you can work with the schools as a team if you want to do sort of where they do get certain kinds of services, but you also officially homeschool and create a world where any things that are perceived as disabilities in one context turn out not to be disabilities when you have the freedom to create a place for your kid. Next up, I'll be talking with Christine Hebert about the infinite variety of ways we can create to run our families. And she has also had kids with learning disabilities and kids who have been in school and kids who have been out of school, just a wide, wide range and has fascinating things to say about it. With me today is Christine Hebert, and we're going to talk about her experience homeschooling and balancing that with her own businesses and her work. Thanks for coming on the show, Christine. Thanks for having me. So I think first what we might talk about is what ages you homeschool, first of all, and how many kids you have. Altogether, we have seven kids. I only homeschooled three of them. My youngest, we homeschooled from the time he was born till he went to school in high school. So till he finished eighth grade. Okay. My younger daughter, we homeschooled from fifth grade through 10th grade. And then she went and finished high school at the local high school. Okay. And one of my stepsons came to us when he was 13 and we homeschooled him until he decided he was done with school when he was about 16 and a half. All right. And a lot of this time you were working or running your own business, right? Um, well, yes, we were definitely um, running our own business. I had given up my full-time job so that I could work in our business and homeschool. My husband worked a lot of evenings because he worked in maintenance services. So a lot of his huh? work was after hours. And we decided that in order for the kids to have a relationship with their father, they should probably be homeschooled so he, they could see him when he was around and available. And we could school when it was convenient. Oh, that's interesting. So that was to sort of accommodate having a, like a relationship, having the time to have a relationship. Yes. Oh, how interesting. So did that, just out of curiosity, this is what, in the way I was thinking this talk would go, but does that mean you kind of shifted your day so that the kids were sort of up at different times than school would be? Or, you know, were they, were they up later? Were they up earlier? Or was it just sort of he's around during the day? It was, they were definitely up later. It was like, we stayed up later at night and got up later in the morning so that we could have a family, you know, have a family, have yeah. family relationships. You know, if they had gone to school, they would have had to be up and out of the house, you know, seven, seven thirty, And this way we could start our day around nine, which meant that, um, you know, my husband could sleep and not be interrupted. And right. then we actually get to spend time with him because he wasn't exhausted from, you know, trying to get up early to be around or trying to um, keep the kids up late and then have them be exhausted in the morning. So, right, right. Did he do some of the schooling as well? He got involved in some of the field trips. Like sometimes we'd go places like the uh, Ecotarium in Worcester uh -huh. and he got involved in things like that. He left most of the schooling to me. Okay. I was just curious. It's interesting. We also did that offset, but that's because my kids were performers for a while when they were younger. So you could say, yes, go ahead. Rehearsal is till 1130 at night. 
fine. Sleep until 1130 in the morning. That's, <laughs> that's yep. kind of funny. Yeah. So what what kind of scheduling, what kind of structure did you have to make sure that you could get what you, because you were, am I mistaken? You did your books, right? You did books for the business? Yes, I did books for the business. I also, um, we had several really large accounts. So there were several days a week when I would actually go out and actually help in the business in the evening. So it, it was uh, to my benefit to homeschool as well, because then I didn't have to get up quite so early in the morning after working in the evening as well. Right. Not to mention the logistics of picking kids up and dropping them off, especially with a large bunch of kids. Yeah. Yep. So how was that? What What were the biggest challenges? I mean, I kind of get the rewards of having a schedule like that. What were the biggest challenges of homeschooling while you were working? Um, the biggest challenges were probably if my husband had to go away for business for any reason and I had to do all of the work. And that, you know, I'd be pretty exhausted the next day. So those were probably the biggest challenges of trying to make sure that the schoolwork got done as well as the rest of the work without being really miserable and grumpy because I was tired. Um, right. That was one of the great things about homeschooling, though, because the flexibility meant that, you know, we homeschooled on a four-day cycle instead of a five-day cycle. Okay, explain that. Well, we, we did the majority of our work in four days, and then our fifth day was our day for catch-up or errands or doctor's appointments or um, field trips. And the syllabus that I used laid everything out for four days. Ah, huh, okay. Yeah. And it, it gave you that fifth day, and it usually had the fifth day, your, your free day, so to speak, be Wednesday, but we used Friday just because Friday worked better for our schedule. It, it worked really well for our family as well, because then if there was anything that we needed to go back over, anything they were struggling with, we had that extra time in that fifth day to go back right. over things. Right. And about how many hours, and I, I'm, I'm, I always qualify this when I talk about it, about how many hours in a day kind of average do you think was your time spent directly like not doing anything else but like I have a lot of people who are really concerned they have to spend six hours teaching each kid and can't see how that is physically possible oh no absolutely not <laughs> um right it, it depends it depended on their ages you know when they're really young they only need maybe an hour or two of schoolwork. They're, the major way that young children learn is through play. So if they have the opportunity to play with good toys, you know, like your kitchen sets and your big trucks and baby dolls and those things that, that just typical classic toys mm. all teach something. Right. And they learn by playing with those toys and by building with blocks and they see cause and effect and that's how small children really learn. So giving them the opportunity to do that rather than trying to sit them in a chair for six hours a day to learn their ABCs. Right. There are so many other ways to incorporate like math into their day. You give them measuring cups. You give them the opportunity to help you bake cookies that's all math. You uh, skip count, you know, 2, 4, 6, 8, 5, 10, 15, 20. You do those things, and they don't even know they're learning math 
while you're doing that. Right. So just having that kind of thing, going outside and looking at nature, picking up acorns, watching the squirrels. These are all things that are great for small children when they're learning. As they get older, they do need a little more time. They do need a little more structure. But I tried to teach my children to become independent as well. They Mm -hmm. each had a planner. And as they became more capable, more of what they had to do was independent work. What do you wish you had known going in, do you think? I wish I had known that I didn't have to do it all. That Uh there are co-ops and there are online teachers and there are lots of schools that don't even finish the book in the year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, trying to get every single page of every book done and putting that stress on yourself and on your kids um, was a challenge. And I wish going back and thinking about that, that I had known that, you know what, most schools don't finish the whole book. Mm-hmm. They, they hit all of the key areas of the book, but they don't do every single page. When someone told me that, I've been homeschooling for a couple of years, someone said, you know, schools don't finish the whole book. <laughs> I, the only book I ever really worked on after that to finish was the math book, because the program I used, you missed a concept if you didn't do the whole thing. But I didn't uh-huh. use your typical school book either. Unfortunately, because my kids are older now, a lot of what I used is no longer available. But there's so much out there. There is a lot out there. Yeah. The flexibility of homeschooling is being able to find what works for your kids and well, what works what was, for your schedule. That's what I was going to ask you is what did you do around resistance? Because not everything does work for every kid. One year, I bought a whole boxed curriculum. It was this beautiful curriculum. It was supposed to be fabulous. And I threw the whole thing away about two months <laughs> in. And I've heard that so many times. <laughs> I, I, you, we used a lot of library books. We used, you know, there's worksheets and things you can print out online for free. There's websites that you can use. There's just so much available I, you know, you Google free homeschooling and you can use your public domain books on archive.org. Right. You know, you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to spend a lot of time because there are already people out there who have put together, you know, a syllabus or a daily lesson plan. And even if you don't use the books they like, if you use what you like, you can use that as a guide. Right. Really, True. that kind of structure was really helpful to me was having somebody else put together a syllabus and just me plugging in the books that I wanted to use and the products that I wanted to use. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then did you, do you ever use uh, LibriVox? I did use LibriVox. My, (laughs) my youngest absolutely loved listening to books on tape. Yeah. We had the Chronicles of Narnia and he, uh, on cassette and he wore them out because he (sighs) liked to listen while he was working and Having a, a book on tape going while he was doing his schoolwork helped him to attend to his schoolwork. He was yes, he was very busy. He mm. didn't sit still, so I didn't require him to sit in a chair. 
Right. You do, you, you, you are busy, but you're doing your work. So, you know, if you want to stand at the table and do it, you go right ahead. If you need to go outside and shoot hoops in the basketball hoop for 10 minutes, go ahead. Do what you need to do to be in control of your body and get your work done. And some right. days that worked and some days it didn't because, you know, kids are, they're different every day. They yeah. really are. You know, the kid you have tonight is not necessarily the same kid that wakes up tomorrow morning. They they grow and they change and they decide that, you know, their favorite food yesterday is not something they want to eat ever again. It just they're different every day. So Well, yeah, one of the one of the things I found really forgiving about homeschooling was that you go through that cycle a couple times and you suddenly realize a lot about what you were worried about doesn't matter regardless of where they're going to school like it's easy to catastrophize that this one thing is going to make a break or kid. And a month later, everything's so different. It really didn't. Now they're totally, totally into gardening. Oh, okay. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's amazing that I, I did try to let them choose some of what they wanted to study while staying within a particular framework. I know some mm. people just let it go and do the whole unschooling thing. I needed more structure than that. Mm -hmm. And actually my kids did too. You know, some kids do really well with like an unschooling where they learn about what they're interested in right now. My kids needed a little more guidance than that. Right. But I could hand them books and say, okay, you need to read this book and be done with it by the end of next week. And we followed kind of a classical style curriculum with a lot of living books, a lot of historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much while homeschooling my children that I never picked up when I was in school myself. Yeah. I hated, hated history. Mm -hmm. I love history now because I looked at it from a different perspective. It wasn't just this cut and dry history text. It was reading about Silver, silver for General Washington, you know, where they smuggled candlesticks and things and melted them down to provide money during the Revolutionary War. Things like that. Never would have picked up on if my kids hadn't been reading these books. I once did a grad course in history for fun when I was um, working in a university. And one of the other students said, you know, I don't understand why history is taught in a boring way because it's basically People Magazine for all of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> That's an just, interesting way to look at it. I just carried that with me like, oh, you are right. We are never talking about like who did the dirt to who and how they barely got away with it. I mean, you know, you can you can make that way more interesting if you free that part of it. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. knowing what your kids' strengths are, too, as far as how to get them to learn. You know, my right. son would not write for me to save his life or mine. <laughs> but when I put him in a writing class with someone else, he blossomed. Uh, yeah. And I, I could have taught him the exact same history I mean exact same writing class but he wouldn't do it for me right but when he was challenged by his friend's mom it was incredible and he discovered that his writing style is very much like Hans Christian Andersen there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of minutiae whereas you know some of his friends were much more concise 
his uh, his writing teacher encouraged him to use short sentences because his sentences would go on for almost a paragraph sometimes. <laughs> it was describing things. But, you know, finding the tools to help your kids succeed was part of the joy. Yeah. And, and there were a lot of days that were not so joyful. There were a lot of days that were kind of a slog. But those days that are joyful, there's... They're the ones that stick out. And they're the ones that my, my youngest in particular was homeschooled the longest. And he said to me, Mom, I'm going to homeschool my kids. Because he, he just, once he went to school, he really was not challenged until he got to college. He's in college now. But in high school, he just kind of skated by. He still, he graduated pro merito. He did really well. But he was never challenged. Interesting. My daughter, when she went to high school, said, Mom, homeschooling with you was like being in AP English all the time <laughs> because we did a lot of literature work. And I, I was so afraid sending them off to high school that I hadn't done enough. Well, I was going to ask you about that. How did reintegration go? Because, again, a lot of people think, well, okay, I'll do this for the pandemic. But then what's going to happen to them? Like I said, I, I was scared. Oh, I was terrified to send my daughter back and then to send my son. And they got there and they excelled, both of them. They both did really well. So all of that worry <laughs> about, mm. oh, my gosh, am I doing enough? But one of the things that I think homeschoolers do, and not just, you know, not just crisis schooling, but homeschooling, one of the things that homeschooled, students in particular learn is how to learn. Right. They don't need okay. necessarily somebody to say, okay, well, this is step A and this is step B and this is step C. I mean, some kids do need that, but a lot of them, once they have been homeschooling for a little while, they realize, oh, I want to learn more about X, Y, Z. So they go to the library and they get a book about it and right. they go on YouTube and they watch videos about it. Well, my son to yeah. this day loves to cook and he'll go on YouTube to learn how to make a new dish and then he'll cook it for everybody and serve it to us. So those are skills that he picked up along the way and his observation when he's watching one of these videos helps him to be able to take that out into the world in other things. Right. You know, it's interesting. A couple of people have talked to me about this idea that what you do in school is what you'll remember. I actually think that, and, and I had people grow, when my kids are growing up say, well, what are they going to do in the real world? I have found the real world to be way more like, I don't know how to do this. I'm going to have to look it up on Google. and Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, we used to get that. Well, what about socialization? And my uh, answer was usually my kids are better socialized than many adults because we go to the grocery store because learning how to buy groceries is a real world skill. It also helps with math. It helps with socialization because they get to chat with the cashier or the, the person stocking the shelves and they're more likely to interact with people of all different ages and classes and walks of life because yeah. they're living in the real world while they're learning. Yeah. They're not sitting in an artificial classroom with people who are only their own age 
and it, now it's even more so than when you and I were in school. I mean, sometimes we had classes where we had three or four different grade levels right? because, you know, you were put where you were going to excel instead of everybody being in the same class. Right. Now they don't get that as much. Everybody's mm. the same age and they're all at the same maturity level and it's challenging. I can't imagine being in a classroom and being a teacher. I, I can't imagine it. Yeah. It, I keep trying to point out to people considering this, that it is really, really different to look out at 35 kids and try to herd them in the same direction to an outcome. It, it's very time consuming. Mm. There's going to be kids on the edges. There's going to be kids that drop out of the middle. It's It's just not... It's not the same as looking at your own family and saying, all right, the state requires you to be able to do this kind of math, do this kind of reading and writing. We're going to do far more than it because we're going to find out what you like to do and give you something to read and give you some math to do about it. You know, it just, it's so, so different. It's like, you know, your, your day is, is nothing like looking at 35 kids and trying to get them to the end. And it's also not providing all the social services that they require teachers to do these days. That's true. That's true. And that that's one of the, I mean, I have friends who have special needs kids. Mm, and I was going to ask you, huh? I was going to ask you if any of your kids had uh, learning disabilities. My oldest, actually, I did not homeschool my oldest, but he does have a learning disability. And mm. the challenge with him was trying to find what worked for him to be able to learn when sometimes a teacher would give oral directions for homework. And when I was working full time and he was going to school, he'd come home and he'd be in tears because he'd get all his homework wrong because she didn't write the directions down. So I had no idea oh. what the directions were like this. And this is when he was very young and that's a load. It, it is a yeah. load. And it took us a while. It took us about a year and a half to figure out what was going on. And once we figured it out and we could put strategies in place to help him learn and overcome those hurdles, he was able to do that. And he's still to this day, he needs a lot of repetition and he needs uh -huh. to see it as well as hear it. You know, he makes himself lists, but he's gone on to have uh, two college degrees. He's got a, a undergrad degree in forestry and he's got a master's with a capstone in conservation biology. So, wow, you know, just whether your kids are in school or they're at home and being homeschooled, finding what works for your kids and demanding right. that they get it because sometimes kids fall through the cracks because parents don't know how to do that. But being able to homeschool and homeschooling your kids who have special needs or your kids who have learning disabilities means that you can make everything accessible to them in a way that they just can't do in a classroom with 30 kids. Right. Right. Well, you were going to say that you were saying friends of yours have kids with special needs. That's, yeah. that's the yeah, I path have, we were going down. I have uh, friends who have kids with Asperger's who don't do well with change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes you'd see a meltdown, but overall they've done really well because things could be adapted to them. I have friends with children with Down syndrome, and they do the same thing. They adapt to the appropriate level for their student. But these kids also can get services through the school department. You know, if right. you have a kid who has hearing issues or speech issues or dysgraphia, 
you can request those services through the school department and still homeschool your child. You do not have to put them in a classroom, especially kids with issues who may be getting bullied or something and having a hard time. Right. Knowing that the school will still provide those services, but you can do what you need to do at home to help your child right. succeed. Well, and that's happening now, too. Like, I have heard this, that, you know, some people were super worried that if they took their kids out and homeschooled, they would be missing any of this uh, sort of help from the schools. And I was like, no, you can work out a hybrid. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of the high schools now have opportunities for kids who are homeschooling to maybe go and take band at school or you know, my daughter participated in the, the girls swim team at school, even though she was homeschooled for her um, freshman and sophomore years. So these are things that are available and not every community is flexible. You have to know your community, which I would always recommend that if you are going to homeschool, you talk to somebody who has homeschooled in your community and has gone through any hurdles. I live in Chicopee and Chicopee can be challenging they will ask for things that are beyond what is required in the Charles and Brunel decisions. And you have to know those things. So there's websites like there's um, Ahem, A-H-E-M. Yeah, I like that one a lot. And, oh, what is the other one? Massachusetts Home... Home Learners, I think, right? M-H-L-A? M-H-L-A. Yes, I think it's M-H-L-A. But they both have really, really good information about the legalities involved and it's important to do what you can to make sure you're within the law but also to make sure that your school district is not asking for more than is required you're not required to give social security number you're not required to give date of birth there's a lot of things that they want that they don't have to have so you can give yourself more privacy and there's also i I noticed this on the ahfa Ahem. Uh, uh, yes. Association of Home Learners in Massachusetts, I think is what it is. And one of the things they had was just this phrase, because some some places may ask, and they're allowed to ask what the qualifications of the parents are. And I know a lot of parents get really upset and think, well, I should have had a, I have to have a degree, or I, I didn't, you know, I didn't finish this or finish that. But in fact, the statement is something like, we are you know, functional, productive adults of good character or something like that. It's like, it doesn't need, you know, any kind, any kind of qualifications beyond the fact that you're intending to pay attention and track what they do and that you're able to do that. It's like, it's nice to have some turns of phrase so that you can sort of go, oh, okay, that's really it. Okay, great. Yeah. And they have resources for how to write your uh, your education plan and your letter of intent. And some of those things, actually, letter of intent is not what's actually required. It's actually an education plan. And I always just gave them what I called my intended list of curriculum. Because mm-hmm. like I said, one year I threw it all out two, two months in and I switched over entirely to different things. Because right. you... You know, you start working with it and, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread until you get into it. And you say, you know, this is really dry and it just is not reaching anybody in my house or there's too much busy work. Because once they've mastered a concept, let's face fact, we don't have to keep beating a dead horse. 
Right. You know, there's no reason to do 20 worksheets on the same thing if after five worksheets they understand it. Right. So that's actually that's a piece that often doesn't really get talked about or addressed that this people people are very concerned it's very interesting they're very concerned that if they homeschool their kids they'll be behind and rarely concerned that if they homeschool their kids they'll be ahead but there's tons of stuff that will just be like oh they got it okay all right i guess we're not waiting until february to do that exactly <laughs> we're gonna do that now um really points out the lie of telling kids who's ahead and who's behind you know well, and anyone who's ahead now next year might be behind. It depends on what the subject matter is and how well they grasp it. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and I always yeah. felt in school like I was dumb. Mm. Now, when we were in school, we had tracking and right. I was always oh. in the highest track, the most right. challenging track. And it wasn't until after I was out of high school and I looked back and I said, well, wait a minute, I can do things like math in particular. I can do yep, a yep. level of math that some people never even get to. So, yes, I might be slower at it. It might take me a little longer, but I can still do this. So I'm not dumb. I just needed a little more time than somebody else did to do the same thing. Well, and being 35th out of a class of 35 that are tracked into um AP bio means you're actually, you know, first or second in the next cohort, but right. you never know that. You just sort of feel like you're on the bottom. Um, my experience at our shared high school is that I started getting flunked out in math in seventh grade and received no help. I was just tracked. So uh -huh. I would spend most of my day with all the AP students. And then my math would be with the kids that had been tracked out of all the other math. We sat around uh, reading the tax oh, um, handbooks. Yeah. And when I went to apply to colleges, the guidance counselor told me I was an idiot savant. And that I was oh never going to actually, yeah, that I was never going to make it in this world. And I just, it, it was devastating. I, I mean, it was like, you know, and, and even though I was like, I know he's being a jerk. It was like, I hope. <laughs> oh my goodness. I hope, I hope he's being a jerk. But I didn't learn. I, I mean, I learned the math I needed to do my jobs. And I actually had some um, accounting type jobs. I had to do accounts receivable for a company and I learned, I learned how to do it by looking up what to do, but I really learned math when I started uh, homeschooling my kids. And I also felt a little bit resentful, like, oh, there was a lot of career possibilities that were closed to me because of this. I got my MBA two years ago and I sat there going, I am still gappy from some of this stuff. Like I, the guy would be like, and of course, naturally it does this. And I'd be like, you're going to have to give me step-by-step step after class. I do not know how you arrived at that. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, and yeah. I knew you in high school and right. I can't believe somebody said that to you. Yeah. Because yeah, well, you were always bright and funny and smart <laughs> except in math and the other thing well, about it that and, was that was you know when you have horrible math teachers i suppose i you, you know you, yeah. i i have a story about math when i was in i was a junior and i was taking advanced math with algebra and trigonometry hmm. and i was beating my head i could not get it 
So I swapped out of that class into senior review math with algebra and trigonometry. It was the exact same book. Oh my God. I went from getting D's to getting A's because I had a teacher who knew how to explain it. And we took a little bit longer on a concept, but oh my goodness, what a difference a teacher can make. Right. There again, like I said, with my own son, I couldn't teach him to write, but somebody else could. But somebody else can. Yeah. You know, knowing your own strengths and being able to say, okay, this is where I need some help and outsourcing those things is huge. So here's a concept that'll help with structuring, not just homeschooling, but structuring your family and structuring your work life. It's applicable to so many things. And once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. And it's called the Pareto Principle. I always use my own dyslexia in it and call the Parteo Principle, but it's the Pareto Principle, P-A-R-E-T-O. The other thing it's called is the 80-20 rule. What it means is Nearly everything has a statistical distribution that is small on the left and small on the right and big in the middle like a hill or a bell. It's also called the bell curve. If you drop a whole bunch of marbles down a path that's got a bunch of nails in it, they will distribute themselves in essentially a bell curve. What's interesting about bell curves, 80% is in that middle bit and then 10% on one side, 10% on the other. That's more or less the idea of the Pareto Principle. So what it can help you with in your regular life or in homeschooling or in any system that you're trying to set up is, what consumes 80% of my time? Look at those things. You can list them. You could take an afternoon and list them. What consumes 20% of my time? That informs you how you're spending your time. And here is kind of a little secret about being a human being. Where we spend our time is where we are spending our attention. It's where we're spending our cognition or our thinking. And where we spend our time is where we spend our love. So if you don't love what you're spending your time doing, it's good to look at that 80% and start challenging whether that's where your time is best spent or whether you should be offloading stuff out of that 80 so that you can better pay attention to the stuff you do love, which is the 20. A good example is if you're spending 80% of your time sweeping, then get a vacuum cleaner and cut that time down. So all systems should be looked at, is 80% of this effective? Good enough. Is 80% of my effort paying off? Is 80% of my kids' effort paying off? Good enough. Good enough for a human being. We cannot operate at 100% all the time. 100%, quite frankly, should be suspect. Because something coming easy to you is not the same as learning it. 
If you want to be in a learning space, if you want to create a learning environment, if you want to honor the need of your kids to learn, your own need to learn, then 80 is what you should be aiming for because 80 means it's still challenging. You still have to work. It is possible to get to 100%, but insisting on it for things, insisting on it for any length of time is unsustainable. And you know this. This is like being in an awful job where they tell you there is zero tolerance for mistakes. And you're like, well, then I can't be a meat-based human here because humans will make mistakes. It's part of the learning. When I consult with businesses on how to better use their employees' time, I like to start talking about taking 80% of repetitive tasks and automating them. That means if you have an email that you do over and over and over and over, you can get a little piece of software that lets you do like a couple of keystrokes and then that email is made. And that goes away so that now what they're really valuable for, what human brains are really valuable for, which is their attention, their care, their empathy, all of those can be used to deal with the emails that require a little more thought. So here are some other ways that the Pareto principle can work for you. You can look at your organization in your home. Is 80% of stuff easy to put away? Good enough. That means that just 20% of your time is spent, it's actually less than 20%, is spent in special putting away of things. And then some things just don't need putting away. But if that is out of whack, if it's hard 80% to put away, then start looking at systems because putting away things is draining too much attention, too much cognition. Look at getting rid of things. Look at finding a system. So maybe putting things in colored boxes isn't working properly. Maybe nobody does it. Maybe the boxes are in the wrong place. For a long time, the boxes that I had, which were translucent, so you could see what was inside, and I did not start there. I started with solid boxes and nobody could put things away. I moved to translucent boxes and that was better. Now you can see that that has all the Playmobil people, that has all the Legos. But even then, it could be a little bit tricky for people in terms of like really easily grabbing the right box. So I took pictures of everything and I put photographs on the outside of the box. And this is where these go. And this is where those go. And this is where these go. And it made it so that when it was time to clean up, you did not have to have a load of thinking, except for the few things that require care. You can put this to work in all sorts of places. It's fun to do it with what you're doing with the kids right now, but you can do it in all sorts of other places. Is your kitchen properly aligned with the Pareto principle with 80-20? When you stand at the dishwasher, can you put away 80% of things without thinking about it with the fewest number of steps possible? Does it make a lot of sense where you put these things? Is there any drawback to putting things here versus there. So for example, you might keep your mugs right by where you make your coffee. That may have sort of an overwhelming sense to it. And it may be on the other side of the kitchen and a pain to put those away. Well, there's your 20%. But why would you keep your blender right there if you're not using it all the time? That can go further away. But it is a way to look at this. It's so funny. I remember going over a kitchen with someone once. They had a brilliant pegboard system for their pots and pans. They didn't put their pots and pans away in any kind of cabinet or drawer or anything like that. 
they had a pegboard system and the pegboard system had very light outlines of what went there, which is very cool. This size pan, that size pan, this size pan. And I asked them, so what was your logic? Are these your most frequently used pans? And the guy said, no, it's the order I unpacked them when I moved here 30 years ago. That would be up for a rethink right there. There was all sorts of places there was all sorts of tools that were used all the time that required a lot of getting and they should go on the pegboard. And equally, there's a ton of stuff on the pegboard that was gathering dust because it is literally never touched. And I think that's the thing we often fall into. We almost write a narrative of shoulds that this should be like this, or maybe it's mindless. Like in the case of unpacking a box, we sort of do these things and then we're stuck in this loop of extra work that we never examined and never asked ourselves, does this need to be extra work? I ended up reworking all the storage areas in my home when my kids homeschooled. All tools lived together except for kitchen tools because my kids and I were all very big into building. We had this broad range of things that we built. So tools included all the cleaning tools because whenever we were done with projects, we needed to clean up. But also the drill and the saw, those are tools and they should be with tools. But also the sewing machine, that's a tool. All the sewing supplies, these were all things that you create with. They are all tools. Why on earth keep them separate? Join me next week. And between now and then, have a lovely and bright fall week. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.